Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Bandike Undercovers for December 2018, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with Christopher Bonanos about his new book, Flash, the Making of Ouija, the famous Arthur Felig's ability to arrive at a crime scene just as the cops did was so uncanny that the photographer renamed himself Ouija, claiming that he functioned as a human Ouija board. Ouija documented better than any other photographer the crime, grit, and complex humanity of mid-century New York. In Flash, we get a portrait not only of the man, both flawed and deeply talented with generous appetites for publicity women, and hot pastrami, but also of the fascinating time and place that he occupied. From self-taught immigrant kid to news hound to art world darling to latter-day caricature, moving from the dangerous streets of New York City to the celebrity culture of Los Angeles and then to Europe for a late phase of experimental photography and filmmaking, Ouija lived a life just as worthy of documentation as the scenes he captured. With Flash, we have an unprecedented and ultimately moving view of the man now regarded as an innovator and a pioneer, an artist as well as a newsman whose photographs are among the most powerful images of urban existence ever made. I began my interview with Christopher Bonanos by asking him where his original interest in photography came from. Um, It begins, I guess, uh, with me as a hobbyist, and not much more than that. I am not a photographer. um, I've looked at enough good pictures to know that I am a perfectly average one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, uh, I I got interested in um, my previous book, which was about the history of Polaroid, uh, through the technology side of it. And I spent a lot of time looking at pictures, and I spent a lot of time talking to photographers and photography people. And, you know, so I felt a certain comfort with the subject. And then the other thing about Ouija is that I, um, I, I often write about New York City history, and especially mid-century New York City history. So you put those two things together, and you end up with him pretty quickly. And you still work at New York Magazine, is that correct? I do. Oh, which I've been reading religiously for decades and and decades. Wow, what a cool gig you have. Mm. We thank you for it. Um, It is a good place to be a writer and an editor, Mm. Um, especially if your pet subject is New York City. Yeah. yeah, It sounds obvious, but it's true. (laughs) It is true. Well, for those who may not know about this photographer, who who are we talking about here? Who who is this guy, Ouija? What what was his uh, original name that he was, was born with? Right. Well, um, he was born Arthur Felig, actually Usher Felig, uh, in Eastern Europe and came here as a 10-year-old when he became Arthur. In the, um, in the 1930s and 40s, he gradually became the best-known and most celebrated uh, New York newspaper photographer working. He was a freelance, and he worked mostly by night. And he really specialized in uh, sort of New York mayhem, for lack of a better term. For lack of a better term crime and murders and car crashes and fires and uh, sort of the, um, to use a cliche, the underbelly of New York City. Um, although he gradually branched out into sort of warmer material and, you know, more, more um, uh, stuff that's a little easier to take, perhaps, what he first got famous for was murders. Mm-hmm. 
And in fact, his first show of photography was called Murder is My Business. Murder is, is my business. His, his early life was, was really tough. It is, it is uh, compelling and, uh, to read about uh, his early days on the Lower East Side of New York. Wow, just, just to survive sounds like it was a day-to-day ordeal for him and his family. He was really poor when his family got here, and he was really a street kid. Um, and as a young adult, even, he slept a lot of nights on park benches and in flop houses and in missions. He, um, he, he really came from nothing, and he was a type that is familiar. He was an ambitious, hustling young guy who wanted to get out of his rotten neighborhood and make some money and get famous and meet girls, you know. <laughs> he is, he is, uh, he is uh, a striver. How did and, he how uh, did he get into photography originally? Um well he he as a teenager he did two things. One is he ordered a little mail order tintype kit and he became a literal street photographer. That is he would he would take pictures of little kids and try to sell portraits to their parents. Um and to that end he um he he tells this story in his autobiography. For a while he he acquired a pony. <laughs> <laughs> that he could pose the kids on. This was not uncommon then. There were, there were other street photographers who used ponies as well. Um, so you could pose the kid on a pony, take the picture, and uh, sell it to their parents for, you know, maximum cuteness. And uh, the story he tells is that there was a, a long stint of rain one, one uh, spring, I think he said. And um, for several weeks, he couldn't go out in the street. And uh, the pony kept eating and was repossessed by the stable owner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. The, the also fascinating to read about is the newspaper industry when he got started in the, in the 20s and 30s. How many daily newspapers were there in New York City, Christopher? So much newsprint. It's really true. There were nine dailies in the mid-30s, and that's the general interest papers. In addition to that, you know, there were papers in Yiddish and Italian and German and uh, all the other languages that, you know, had large immigrant groups and some of the smaller ones as well. Um, and then in addition to that, there were the specialty papers like the uh, Daily Worker, which, you know, was uh, uh, aimed at a uh, labor audience, and the Wall Street Journal, which was aimed at a financial audience. Just oceans of newsprint, but there were nine general interest dailies, and uh, four in the mor- uh, five in the morning and four in the afternoon. Um, <sighs> there aren't afternoon papers anymore at all to speak uh, of, you know. All right, They're I'm going to test you. Can, almost extinct. Can, can you name all those nine off the top of your head? Uh, uh, in, uh, yes. Uh, um, in 1935, let's see, the morning papers were the New York Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Herald Tribune, um, and the New York Daily Mirror, wow. which competed with the Daily News. And then in the afternoon, you had... Uh, oh, no, and the fifth morning paper was The American, which was a Hearst paper. Uh. Um, uh, in the afternoon, you had the New York Evening Journal, the New York World Telegram, uh, the New York Sun, and the New York Post, which survives. Yeah, right. And of Post course, moved to mornings later on. Later on. And, of course, this voracious need for copy and for photographs. So I, I imagine it wasn't all that difficult, or was it, for Ouija to get his photos used in one of these uh, newspapers? Which one did he start with? Well, that's exactly right. He, he, it was both difficult and less difficult than it might be now because there was such a, a demand. You know, the bigger papers, like the Times and the Daily News, had staff people, uh, many staff people, 
and could mostly fulfill their own needs. But in the um, in the in the smaller papers like the World Telegram or the Sun uh, or the Post, which was pretty sane in those days, um, they didn't have people on staff working through the night. You know, the depression was on, and the staffs were a little smaller than they might have been. So they often uh, turned to freelance work, and that was the niche he found himself. Where does because he worked all night. Worked all night. Yeah, he would work all night. He would shoot all night, and then at 6 a.m. he'd show up at the post. He had a kind of an informal first look deal with them. They got he he could use their dark room. He had a key, and so he'd run there and process whatever he'd shot in the last couple of hours, and then they got to look at it before the other papers did. And then he'd make rounds. He'd show up at the World Telegram, and he'd show up at the Sun, and he'd show up at the Herald Tribune, and say, you know, hey guys, I got that murder on 10th Avenue. You want it? <laughs> how did he how, how did he arrive at the scene uh, virtually sometimes even before the the police did what 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 how did he do that what was well, his secret his his yeah his, he he claimed to be um uh to have special sort of psychic powers that was that was the joke of his name Ouija you know he claimed to be human Ouija board uh-huh. uh in fact all he did was hustle he would uh, in the early days he would hang around the police teletype and then he'd you know jump in a cab or cadge a ride from one of the cops or do something like that and and get to the scene along with them and then in 1938 he bought himself two things he he bought a car and he bought a police radio and got permission to uh, to install it in his car uh-huh. And so he could he could track what was going on all night. And so if he was out cruising and heard something come over the radio, he could sometimes actually beat the cops there if he was in the neighborhood. And that worked out really well for him because he needed that competitive advantage uh, sometimes to uh, to outrun the staff guys from the papers. Well, that the camera that he is using on the this photograph on the cover of your book. This is a, this is a pretty bulky uh, unit here. What kind of camera is this called again? It's called a speed graphic, and it was the standard press camera of the day. And it's a you know it shoots four by five inch negatives, and it's got a big bellows on the front. And you see them in old movies. It's the thing with the big flash gun clamped yeah. to the side, um, and it's you know it it, it weighs about six or seven pounds. I have one and it's a beast. You could, you know, you could, you could take out a guy with it. Um, and perhaps more important, you could, you know, drop it out a window and it would still work. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> um, it's very, very tough. And, uh, and it's also a pretty good camera. It's versatile. And once you get used to its many sort of settings and things, you can work pretty fast, which was something he absolutely needed to do at a fire or a crime scene. Let's go back to his nickname. We all assume Ouija got his nickname from, yeah, the, the Ouija board analogy. But, but you have something different in your book as to the, the true origin of his nickname. This is that, fascinating. That's right. He always claimed it was because he was, as I said, uh, you know, kind of a clairvoyant photographer. Yeah, which, which was a good story. Right. <laughs> but BS. And it's just that. Uh-huh. In real life... When he was a young man, before he broke through as a freelance photographer, he had a day job. He worked as a a, um, a darkroom assistant, first at the New York Times and then at a photo agency called Acme. Hmm. Um, and while he was at the Times, he was the lowest guy on the corporate ladder there, um, and his job was to dry off prints as they came out of the wash. Um, and the term for that was squeegee boy. 
Ah, squeegee boy, but kind of the, the first uh, syllable there or part of it kind of got chopped off the name? You got it. Yeah, what they would do when a print came out of the watch, somebody would, would um, uh, slap it on a table or something, I forget exactly, and they would shout squeegee ah. for some of the junior guy, one of the junior guys to come over, and that was him. Wow. Where did you, how did you manage to track that bit of information down, which I've, I've never read before about Ouija? Um, uh, I, I can't claim credit for it. It was, it was unearthed by a, a, a photography scholar named Miles Barth about 20 years ago. Huh. He heard it from a guy who was still alive then, gone now, who had worked in the darkroom with Ouija. Uh, he remembered it. And since then, I have discovered that other photographers wrote memoirs in which they talked about being squeegee boys. And I also found a magazine article where it was mentioned in the 1940s, uh, an article written by a friend of his who said, he always says he's psychic, but the real story is that he was a squeegee boy. <laughs> huh, that's wild. Yeah. So, so there were many, many uh, staff photographers, freelance photographers fighting to get their work in the newspapers, but it was rare for any single person to get photo credit, correct? For a long that's time. That's right. Most credits in the 30s, in the early 30s especially, most newspapers, some would occasionally credit staff people, but not often. You know, usually it would say just a World Telegram photo or journal photo or would credit the agency, Acme photo, uh, AP photo. And, and how did, he, yeah, well, how did he, he get would, his name in? Uh, by pestering people, mostly. <laughs> 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 you know, he was, he was a nudge. He, he, uh, he, would, he would pester editors until they... Uh, caved, and then also as he sort of um, uh, became more of what we might now refer to as a personal brand, <laughs> right? Uh, there became value in attaching his name to something. You know, hey, look, we got a Ouija. <laughs> uh huh. Uh-huh. Um, so you know, he he began to um, uh, uh, he began to get famous for his photography, and then suddenly it was worth their while to have his name on their pictures instead of something they could fight. Mm, mm. Well, let's pick one one of his best-known images. Maybe we want to talk about what? The the one in front of a, is it a lounge or a restaurant called The, the Spot? And it, it is a, a very graphic photo of a person who has been murdered. And again, this is sort of part of this world of Ouija, this very, very mordantly darkly funny you feel almost ashamed to be even chuckling at, at, at the picture of a person who's dead but uh, I guess the excuse is a lot of the photographs he took to, were, were of very unsavory types who maybe didn't deserve all of that much uh, emotion people like gangsters but talk about mm-hmm. that 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 photo the the photo on the spot that I'm mentioning yeah, right what you're describing is exactly right there's a certain gallows humor in a gallows lot of humor pictures. but yeah. you know we we, we, we as a culture kind of like that Right? Oh, you see mm-hmm. a bad guy who gets it in the end. Got you know? what he deserves. <laughs> you know? right. um, mm-hmm. That particular photo, it shows a, uh, a guy who'd been rubbed out. I think he was a minor hood, if I remember right. And he's on the curb outside a bar called The Spot. And he's, um, he's, he's, uh, he's bleeding all over the sidewalk. There's no getting around it. I mean, yeah. and three or four cops who have arrived are sort of standing around sizing up the scene. Um, it, is, um, uh, it is kind of a joke photo. 
um, there's an extra layer of more morbid humor in there because the big sign on the bar says the spot. It's, this is a, it was a place on Ninth Avenue. And um, to be put on the spot was to be the victim of a mob hit. That was the term of art in those days. Ah. So there's an inside joke there. And then there's a secondary joke that is uh, sort of an inside one about press photography because the particular brand of press photography of running to news and running it the next day in the paper um, is referred to in the business as spot news. Uh, uh-huh. Ouija was a spot news photographer. Wow. On the spot. Multi-layered. Guy put on the spot. Multi-layered. Triple layered. joke. Yeah, yeah. Another one of his most famous images was uh, taken, what, near the Metropolitan Opera. And is this, is it we found to, to learn, was a stage photograph? Is that right? That's right. This is his, uh, probably his most famous picture, yeah. the one that appears in, you know, collections of great photographs of the 20th century. It's called The Critic, and it shows two ladies uh, exiting their limousine outside the Metropolitan Opera, and they're covered in white fur and diamonds. They are, you know, your, your, your cliche image of uh, 1940s socialites. They're just, they're over the top. And there's a third woman in the photo who looks homeless or close to it and is sort of sizing them up in mm. profile. Mm-hmm. Um, and the title he gave the photo is The Critic. Mm. Um, and it's a little masterpiece. It tells a story and it's a social comment and it's funny. Um, and, you know, I, I, I need not tell you which of the people we all see ourselves in. <laughs> uh, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And anyway, he, uh, he always said it was a great moment that he had, you know, he, he, that he, just, he was just photographing the two opera ladies and the third woman was there and he didn't even notice her or spotted her when he was processing the picture in the darkroom. That was always his line. And as it turned out, uh, 40 years later, his assistant came clean <laughs> and said um, she was a friend of his. And they had got her drunk earlier in the day and brought her up to the Metropolitan Opera <laughs> and propped her up at the curb because she could barely stand <laughs> and set up the whole scene. <laughs> uh, did he do a lot of that, that stage? Though? Obviously, you can't stage a murder. Fo- That's right. But... He, he, he did it on occasion when he could. More often, he wouldn't stage a scene exactly, but he'd possibly give it a little help, you know? Mm-hmm. There are stories that no one ever confirmed, but I kind of believe them, that he would perhaps, you know, if a murder victim's hat had fallen a little out of the frame, he might nudge it back into the frame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if, um, you know, he wanted a picture, for example, of... Uh, of uh, one of his most famous pictures is of... Uh, kids sleeping on the fire escape during a heat wave. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And um, apparently he waited for a hot... Uh, he, when he saw a hot day um, in the weather forecast, he might go to an apartment that he knew had a whole bunch of kids who slept on the fire escape anyway and just ask them to maybe pose a little bit so he could have the picture in the can ready to go for the next scorcher. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. rather than Rather than stumbling on it the night of... You know, the idea was to have a hot weather picture he could sell that night. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we his photos go for uh, some pretty high prices at auction houses. When did these photographs come to be seen as art, Christopher? Um, it was a gradual process. It, even in his, uh, even during the peak of his career, the Metropolitan, I mean, excuse me, the um, Museum of Modern Art started buying them. They bought a few and they showed him in exhibitions. But generally they were in exhibitions that really stuck to press photography and uh, spot news kinds of things. Um, You know, as late as 30 years ago, well after his death, his pictures didn't sell for a lot of money. 
most photography didn't sell for a lot of money. Right. And really, in in our generation is when the prices have started to go up and people have started to sort of reassess. He is he is definitely more famous now and more well-regarded as an artist now than he was at his death, which is not quite 50 years ago. Hmm. He died in 1968. 68. What was, what was considered his heyday, and what did he do in the, say, declining years of his career? What sort of work did he do? Yeah, his peak uh, career, you could say, is about 1935 to about 1948. 1950 in there. And after that, he did two things. In the late 40s, he moved to Hollywood and stopped doing news and mm. started shooting movie premieres and things like that. He wanted to do more slice of life stuff. And he also tried to be an actor, if you can believe it. And he has bit parts in about six or eight huh. movies. Um, he wasn't a very good actor and he wasn't a leading man, heaven knows. He, he was a sort of squat, stumpy guy. He was not Cary Grant, let's put it that way. Yeah. And uh, then he also moved into a whole other realm of trick photography with distortion lenses and um, uh, 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 distortion filters and things that would lay patterns over pictures, a very eccentric body of work that the art world kind of regarded as junk and now does not regard as junk. Now there's some interest in this material again because it, you know, sort of prefigures our our age in an interesting way. You know, there's a lot of manipulative photography being made right now and people play around with Photoshop and all that stuff. He was doing it in the darkroom, so it's a little cruder. And it, it I, I can't say that it rises to the level of his greatest uh, New York stuff, but I, I think of it as an interesting sort of second body of work. And, and final question, Christopher, what, what's his legacy? Are there, are there current photographers who are highly regarded, who, who consider a Ouija an important influence on their work? There are a great many. First of all, anyone who shoots press photography thinks about him as one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. He's, he's, their, he's their Muhammad Ali or yeah. <laughs> whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a great many photographers uh, making art now, people like Cindy Sherman and Laurie Simmons, who who go for that same sort of otherworldliness in the ordinary, for lack of a better term, and who are interested in that era, that mid-century uh, vibe. You know, Cindy Sherman is m- probably best known for this body of work called Untitled Film Stills, where she would dress up as 1940s characters and insert her into these scenes that look like film stills, but are sort of uncannily not of that era. Um, and uh, I know she was looking at Ouija's photographs, um, and, um, you know, it, it, if anything, he is more influential now than he was at his death, in part because I think he, although he was capable of great subtlety in his photographs, um, worked in broad strokes. Uh, you know, he is, uh, his photos are not of super subtle material. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> you know, guy bleeding out on the street, um, and that is well suited to our age. We live in a loud and noisy time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers for December 2018. Our interview was with Christopher Bonanos about his new book, Flash: The Making of Ouija the Famous. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Someone thought they had missed it And to prove that it really